Will This Be On The Test Teacher Pod is a podcast by, for, and about teachers. It's not a place where we discuss rigor or teaching methods or sell lesson plans. It's simply a safe space for teachers to share their stories, frustrations, and triumphs, and for our listeners to realize, episode after episode, that they're not alone. Will This Be On The Test Teacher Pod is sometimes funny, sometimes disturbing, but always honest. Welcome to Will This Be on the Test Teacher Pod. Three teachers explore the realities of education. This week, we are super excited to have Alyssa Hadley Dunn, Associate Professor in the Department of Teacher Education at Michigan State University and author of Teaching on Days After, Educating for Equity in the Wake of Injustice. I'm Yo Miss. I'm Miss V. And I'm Hey Teach. How are we all doing today? Doing pretty good, actually. I have to ask if you guys have are, have gotten snow in the last week. Yes. Or is, is only Michigan working to crush what's left of my soul? It's snowing right now. Yes, <laughs> it's it's snowing here. I went running today, and I had to wait until later so the snow would melt a little bit, and it was just this howling wind, and and I'm done with it. I'm I'm freaking done with it. I'm done. That's it. And I know we can get snow sometimes over spring break. I know it in my brain, but this year, for some reason, my soul just cannot. And I know it's going to be like in the 50s next week here, but I just watched it come down this week, (laughs) like just dying inside with every flake. (laughs) I have not had a snow day yet this year. So I was like, no. No, every snowstorm has been on a weekend, and the one. Um, storm that came during the week when everyone else in the state had a snow day we happened to be virtual at the time due to covid so we had a virtual day oh that sucks yeah it's i I think because it's snowed like little bits here like there's like one storm and then another and then it's like a couple of inches and a couple of inches again and it's just like shut up stop already enough (laughs) i I just i'm done i am done with it (laughs) But spring is coming, supposedly. Meantime, I just wanted to, even though our listeners are hearing this later, obviously, uh, because we're not live, but uh, just wanted to note that today is actually March 13th, which those of you who have been alive for more than two years know this was the day. This was the day they sent us home and said, it'll be two weeks. You'll be back. We just want to flatten the curve. So... This is the day when we all thought we can worry. You don't have to worry about diet and exercise. Let's just hunker down for a couple weeks and eat mozzarella sticks as a second dinner. It'll be over soon and we'll all be back. (laughs) Not not that that's anything that's happened to me personally. (laughs) (laughs) And then two months of mozzarella sticks later, two years of mozzarella sticks later. (laughs) Yeah, we, we had like four pizzas on the day after because, you know, pie day is a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and we we got really sick of pizza really fast. Yeah. yeah. It's Actually, funny my- to look at my Facebook memories because apparently I was quite the, <laughs> the mask snob at the beginning. Like my husband's a contractor, so I had this like post that was like stop buying masks real people need these for their jobs don't be paranoid and I read them now and I'm like oh boy that really didn't age well 
Wow, you were a real a-hole. <laughs> well, that was rough. But this is a good segue to Alyssa's book. Alyssa's book focuses on kind of how teachers can be prepared for teaching on the day after these big events and things like that that happened. Although COVID, there wasn't so much a day after as it was teaching in the midst of this giant shit show that seems to never end. Um, so before we get into that and start picking Alyssa's brain, I thought first I'd see from whether either as a teacher or as a student, times that you remember being in the classroom during those big moments. I was in college during 9-11, but I have heard since from many teachers about that sort of, if you ask them about a day, being in the classroom on in a big day in history, that's usually what most of my teacher friends think of. So I'm curious what you, what memories you two have. I was not yet teaching when 9-11 uh, took place. For me, honestly, the one that I remember the most, and I can't remember if it was the day after the election or the day of the inauguration, but it was when uh, Trump was elected because the district in which I taught we had many, many students from other countries and their families were from other countries. And these kids were terrified. And because I was so unhappy with the result of the election, it wasn't even like I had, you know, any, I had nothing left to give. And these kids are like, are we going to lose our homes? Are we going to have to leave? I mean, it was it was horrible as as a um, as a teacher, as a student. And again, this dates me, but it's kind of interesting. I remember when Martin Luther King was assassinated, and they announced it at my school, and I had no idea who he was because I was a nice white girl in a white neighborhood, and no clue. And I look back on that and I say, "Oh my God, that's awful!" But I no idea. So, but yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Hey Teach? As a student, I would say Columbine was a really big yeah. deal. Mm -hmm. um, I was in middle school at the time and I had teachers that basically said, we don't talk about this. And I had uh, one teacher who acknowledged it and was willing to discuss the fact that we were kind of traumatized by this. And this was a big deal for us. As a teacher, I would say, oh gosh, you know what? Actually, recent. I'm going to go with recent memory because this year the invasion of Ukraine was really terrifying for my students. And it has been a very challenging thing to discuss because while the majority of my students are not Caucasian, they are not white, but we do have three white children in the entire eighth grade and all three of them happen to be from Russia. Oh, wow. So trying to be very culturally res responsive and respectful is really, it's really, um, I don't want to say it's difficult because they, they are very much, you know, against the war themselves, but being able to kind of remind people like, we are not anti-Russia, we are anti this person, we are anti this war, you know, that, that has really been something that has been, um, gosh, I'm trying to put this into words. It has been something that has been a challenge because eighth graders as, as a, an entity just are not easy to separate an idea from a person necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. So thankfully we got this book right about that time. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, for me, like I said, I was in college during 9-11 and what actually sticks out to me more, on the one hand, I think I had just gotten to class and they had wheeled out a TV on a cart for, for those of us who remember those days. And it was just in the hallway and no one went to class. Like we were all just sitting around in the hall watching. And I remember when the first tower went down, some of the people in that group just like screaming or like starting to cry. And obviously that was such a different experience experiencing that on the campus of Michigan State than had I experienced it in my small hometown. So I think it had a bigger impact on me because I saw such a wide range of responses. But what I really remember was, I think it was the next day I had an English class and this cuckoo woman wanted us to do this like really vulnerable, like journaling and discussion about our feelings and what we had seen on TV. And I just remember, and this is like something for me because I process everything verbally. And I just remember feeling like I had, I didn't want to do that. Like with all of my being, I didn't want to journal about it or talk. I really just wanted to go home and it's all we wanted to do was stare at the TV. And I was so mad at her for like, forcing us to be vulnerable. And that's something that as a teacher, I always try to keep in mind because maybe just because you might feel ready to talk about it doesn't mean your kids are. But I guess, Alyssa, I would like to turn it over to you and ask you kind of what got you started down this path and gave you the idea to start doing this research. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you all so much for having me here. I'm really excited. Um, to talk with you about this topic. And the, actually, so much of what might be, got me interested in the topic was similar to the conversation that you just had about the days after that you remember as students and as teachers. Because I think so often we're asked, where were you the day of things, right? Like we, and we, we might grow up hearing our family stories of where they were, like, um, you know, when, when Kennedy was shot or when someone walked on the moon or all of these, or 9-11, all of these other days, depending on our ages that become part of our family lore and personal lore. But when I talk to now grown adults, when I ask about where they were on days after, it's much harder for people to remember because so many of those experiences when they were in school were of silence and were of teachers not talking about it, even if the students wanted to talk about it. So two of uh, my friends and colleagues, Hannah Carson Baggett and Beth Sondal and I decided to ask teachers about what they did on the day after the 2016 election. That was kind of our first, you know, research foray into this. And we all are faculty and we do research, but we do qualitative research. So normally, you know, I'm interviewing like four people <laughs> and telling their stories, but we put out this questionnaire online and we got almost a thousand responses. And at first we were like, oh shit, well, like, what do we do with this? Because <laughs> normally we talk to four people, but then it just really illustrated for us how much teachers wanted to do something, but weren't sure what to do and how much their students were, as you said earlier, traumatized and terrified, of course, depending on which, you know, demographics of students they were working with. So we did, we did a few different projects after the 2016 election. And then I just started thinking about all of the other days after that happen in a teaching career and in a student's life, things at the international level, like what's happening in Ukraine right now, 
things at the national level, at the state, the local, and then like the school and community level, because we know sometimes things happen in schools, right? And, and often it might be administrators telling teachers like, don't talk about that, or, you know, be careful how you talk about that. At all of these levels, kids are experiencing these really critical moments and teachers are looking for what to do. So then, as you said, I put out this call for participants, in particular for teachers who wanted to teach for justice and equity on days after and wanted to push back against this idea of neutrality and of not talking about it and of silence. Because that's, that's the, you know, the type of work that I do. I care about racial and social justice. Um, it's what I teach. It's what I research. And it's who I strive to be. So I was looking for teachers who in particular had that shared commitment. Once you got all the interviews and everything together, what were some of the things that you felt a lot of these teachers had in common in terms of their experiences with teaching the day after or difficulties with teaching the day after? Mm -hmm. So in particular, there was um, this idea uh, that I mentioned earlier of pushing back against neutrality of many times teachers are told to be careful about what they say and how they say it, if they are allowed to say anything at all. Uh, like this, this mantra of teaching both sides in the classroom. But we know that teaching both sides oppresses certain groups. And so the teachers who were willing to talk with me had really clear commitments for advocating for the most vulnerable and marginalized student groups, whether or not they were in their classrooms at all. And so teachers were were sharing that even though it was really sometimes difficult to have these conversations, that they were willing to take the risk and be vulnerable themselves because they knew that it was really important to teach toward transformation for the students in their classes. And that meant having student-centered lessons on days after. It meant, of course, being really adaptable and flexible, you know, like the night before you think you have your whole lesson planned and then something happens and it's 11 o'clock and you get out of bed and you, you got to plan the whole thing all over again. And so teachers were really committed to it. But the other thing that, that most teachers had in common was that they felt like they had never learned about how to do it. So this wasn't something that was talked about in their teacher preparation programs, even for, for people who had gone through teacher prep programs that said they were committed to social justice. Mm -hmm. um, so for some reason, this was not part of the social justice, right? Like you could plan ahead for social justice, but if social justice happens in the moment, then teachers often, you know, didn't, didn't learn how to do it. And there were not a lot of faculty who were modeling this kind of thing in their own classes. And then, of course, there was the, the fear of pushback from parents, from administration, in particular, if teachers were what I call ideological outsiders. So, for example, if after the 2016 election, you were the only Clinton supporter in a school of Trump supporters, it made it really difficult to figure out what to do on that next day. But I love there was a quote in the book. There were like so many great tidbits and I was like typing. I'm like, I'm going to quote these all in the podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I love the teacher, though, who says students already know our perspectives. We're not fooling anybody. Our students are deeply aware of our politics. Students are very intuitive. And I, at least in my experience, I think that, I mean, I never hid that about, I mean, I had like a pride flag up and all of the, all of the signs that, you know, a liberal teacher would display. So it's not that they didn't have to be that intuitive. But I do think 
that we sometimes think we're already operating from a more neutral place than we really are. I mean, you know, if you talk to kids, if you name certain colleagues, oh, they'll tell you which, oh, don't, I would never bring it up around that one, you know, so they totally know, I think already. That's why, you know, when the, when they're upset about the tr- a Trump election or they're upset, you know, they know which teachers I think to kind of go to for, for, I don't know, for the help that they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they definitely can sense it. And, and, and I, you know, I was teaching fifth grade at that point. So it wasn't like I was doing a lot of news coverage or anything like that necessarily, but um, they, they just, I don't know. They just do know that I was on the more liberal end of the, the spectrum. But one of the things I also loved in the book was that in terms of practical suggestions and some of the teachers said constantly asking kids, well, what what's the evidence? What's your evidence for that? And to me, that's such a great way to sort of put holes in some of the things that we know are not true and to also have kids have to think and and defend their point of view, which if they're just sort of parroting what they're told at home, that's going to stop right there if they can't come up with evidence for that. So I thought that was a great, even if you're afraid of the pushback, a great way to sort of get at least get some thought and dialogue going. So it's terrific. Yeah. And we know those students are going to push buttons as well. You know, there were a lot of really great lines in your book about student parent administrative pushback. If you could give one piece of advice beyond find that evidence, what what would you tell the teachers who are listening? For how to respond to student pushback in particular or any kind? Uh, pushback in general, I guess. Well, I will paraphrase what someone else told me then with a story because I'm a teacher. So, you know, that, that obviously has to happen at some point. When I was in grad school at Emory, I had a, a faculty advisor named Dr. Jackie Irvine, and she was once marching with Abernathy and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in Atlanta And I was concerned with some parents pushing back and some students pushing back to what I was teaching. And she said, I'm going to share with you what Abernathy told me. (laughs) Like, okay. Um, And she said that if they're not coming for you, you're not doing work for justice. So the way that I see it is that we can, when we work for justice and equity, we can anticipate the pushback so that it doesn't feel so stressful in the moment. We know that it's coming and indeed it should come, right? We should also be providing evidence for our perspectives and our viewpoints. And so a lot of when students say like, oh, well, you're just teaching your opinion, right? We, I think we've all heard that. I, my response is actually, yes, I am teaching my opinion. And it is my opinion because it's grounded in decades of research-based evidence that whatever that opinion is, that's how I form my opinions. And I would love for you to also form your opinions the same way. Like, so let's, let's talk about that. So I think that pushback is a natural thing. It doesn't mean that it's not scary in the moment, but if we know and anticipate that it's coming, there are things that we can do proactively to ensure that we are not engaging in the fight alone. I think what I found too was sometimes I was like, felt like I was putting on my armor to have this conversation. And then a lot of times the kids didn't even have facts. So it ended up me thinking we're going to have this like big conversation about Black Lives Matters. But instead it was like, no, no, that's not, no, no. So I was like, let me just give you like kind of just a 
just a summary of events here. I mean, and that's very notorious high school. Like they kind of heard a little snippet of something and they maybe saw. And so I think even being prepared the day after to just say, here's a thing that happened. Here's what we know. You know, here's, I would say sometimes like, here's what I'm wondering. Here are my questions. Because I absolutely agree with you that there is the the equity and justice component. But I think sometimes, especially if I had upperclassmen, I would sometimes assume they were already, they had already watched all the news I had and they have watched almost no news. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's always a good place to start. And then there's a quote in your book, which I assume is at Bettina Love, because I just put that, I just put love. So I assume that's who it was. Mm-hmm. And this is like yes. real heavy and serious, but you said love challenges us, especially white teachers, to be willing to put our jobs on the line when it comes to being co-conspirators in the struggle for educational and racial justice. If we aren't willing to do this on days after, then when will we? And I thought that was very striking because really, what are you waiting for? Right. Why? If not, you know, the, the constant refrain, like, if not now, when? Yeah. And if not you, mm-hmm. then who? And that sort of now segues to how do you think this has changed? Because before you came on and we were kind of talking, this was, you know, a couple of years ago, of course, that like I did the interview with you, I think years, was, has it been mm-hmm. years? Yes, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> with COVID in between. Yes, and I used to always feel like I could, I could talk about pretty much anything in my class because I felt confident in my ability to be fact-based and listen to different sides and discuss it. And I, But I don't know that I would feel that way right now, given the current climate with parents and students and admin that may or may not be supportive. And so I know you talk in the book about a lot of teachers referenced, I don't want to lose my job, but there really aren't that many cases of teachers who lose their job over it. But I wonder if you have any thoughts on, you know, has this changed given the current climate of parents screaming at school boards? Or is it different? Do we go about the work differently now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a good question. One that I get that get asked a lot. There are stories in the book of teachers from more recently, right? So there's teachers who are referencing teaching after the 2020 election, during and after teachers who taught after the insurrection at the Capitol. And they are all basically saying the same thing, which is that um, I did this before and I'm going to keep doing it in this current climate. And I think what we often forget is that the current climate feels new and different, but it's actually not. You know, it's just covered more, right? We just hear about it more. So there has always been this pushback on teachers. There's always been people screaming at school boards, it just the newest incantation is in the form of, you know, ideas about critical race theory. But there, especially in, in schools that serve predominantly students of color, there's just so much racism that can happen if we say, like, as white teachers, that more racism than is already there. If we say, I'm not willing to put my job on the line for this. Because for our colleagues of color, I'm a white educator, too. For my colleagues of color, they are already presumed to have certain political beliefs and ideologies, whether they do or not, mm-hmm. simply because of how, the, how their identities are read. Um, and so my job as a co-conspirator, as Dr. Love is saying, is to make note of whatever the current climate is and figure out how to negotiate and collaborate with others so that 
um, it's not left up to colleagues of color in these even more critical and contentious moments. So I think it makes it even more imperative for us to do something in the current moment, even though we know that this has been happening all along, only now we see it more often, right? Like just, just yesterday or the day before, there was news coverage of the assistant principal who got fired for reading the kids' book. Yeah. Did you all see that? Yes, mm -hmm. okay. it's called something, find a new butt. It's not race right. or anything. Yes. Exactly, I need a new butt or yeah. something. And it's a hilarious book. Like I own um, it. my kids have read it. <laughs> yeah. and, and so if like, if that's why they're gonna come for you, right for <laughs> for a book that is designed to engage readers and make kids laugh then then what are we waiting for right they're always going to find a way and an excuse to to push back against equity and justice mm -hmm. so if if we can't even read books like this right some teachers will say oh my gosh i can't read books like that so i shouldn't be doing this other thing I would actually argue the opposite, as would the teachers in the book, which is if they're going to come for you for reading this other book, then by all means, do what you need to do in the classroom. Yeah. Like actually fight for justice and equity. It's like that expression, uh, you're better off asking for forgiveness than permission. Exactly. I was just going to say that. You know, yes. it's, and you're 100% right about this has been going on forever because I mean, I'm old as dirt. And I remember when I was a kid, and when I was in elementary school, the Vietnam War was happening. And I mm -hmm. have an older brother who it was, you know, dicey as to whether or not he was going to have mm -hmm. to go and all this. And so my mom sent me to school with a black armband on. Mm. And yeah, okay, on, mor right. on moratorium day. Okay. And I'm my ass got hauled right into the principal's office. <laughs> and it was like a whole to do. And my mom came and picked me up and said, okay, well, we'll leave. You know, that's fine. But you know, it was that kind of thing. And, and, you know, on the one hand, it was great that my mom was saying like, you know, you, you, we express our points of view, which, you know, that was her. But um, on the other side, it was, you know, an elementary school in New York City, that they, they didn't want to, didn't want to talk about it. And I don't know, you know, what a teacher would have done. I mean, my teacher literally sent me right to the office. She did not want to deal with it, you know? So it's, it's been going on forever. So you're, you're absolutely right. It's just, it keeps happening over and over, but it is, you know, it's tough. Like I know here I'm in New Jersey and we have tenure. So I feel mm -hmm. like once I was tenured, I was more apt to be open about things versus before that I, I didn't want to lose my job. And it was scary. It is scary mm -hmm. to do. We also have a lot of states where there are zero job protections right now. Mm -hmm. um, and while there is a teacher shortage, that doesn't seem to be stopping anyone from putting teachers over the coals. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of it's kind of nice to actually have research to back you, mm -hmm. you know, and I think this book can do a lot of good in that way as well, because it's very it's very easy for someone to rake a teacher over the coals and put you you know, up on the, on the gallows for saying whatever you're going to say. And it's really nice to have research to say, wait a minute, there's research to back what I'm saying here. There's research to back what I'm doing, that I'm supporting my students I'm supporting the community. Mm -hmm. So I, I do, I do really appreciate that about this book. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that's something that I tell my, the pre-service teachers who I work with, 
you know, the, the things that we're learning to do in the classroom that might get pushback, right? Culturally relevant and sustaining pedagogy, critical pedagogy, abolitionist teaching, these are all research-based, meaning this is not just some faculty member or some group of teachers who are like, I think I'll try this today. Like, let's just see how it goes. That's not it at all. And so I have my pre-service teachers write rationales for kind of every curriculum that they want to teach, which seems like this huge extra step. But at the same time, it can ease the stress in the moment if you do get that parent email or you do get that administrator email because it's like already I have written down why I am teaching the way that I'm teaching, what research I'm drawing from, what standards it connects to in my subject and my grade level, and what my professional organization says about it, right? We have the National Council for Teachers of English and CSS and CTM, all those NARST, all those organizations that support teachers in, in their pedagogy, but also in their organizing. And so you don't have to like all of a sudden look it up in the moment when you're so stressed and so worried and so scared, because like you said, it is really scary. You already have everything justified so that you can send it back right away and give yourself time to breathe. And everything is kind of laid out there because you know, as an educator, that everything that you do is based on what you think will be best in your classroom and that you know is best for your students in these moments. And you have it already there to just send out. And I think, I mean, I, I already agree with you, already agreed with you probably before I knew you, but if anyone, <laughs> if anyone is listening to this feeling, um, you know, unsure, I think, you yeah. know, your book does a great job of laying out why this is needed and then using those examples from teachers from a variety of incidents. And then also those student spotlights. I think are so powerful because I do think we sometimes have a false narrative of what our kids are thinking or doing in our class. And so those are really powerful. And then, you know, kind of like the now where do I start kind of piece at the end. But I think I think what's so powerful about the book are those teacher examples, because it kind when we just talk about it, it feels like this, like these big revolutionary things. And then this happened and then you organize a Black Lives Matter march through your school when really the examples in the book are just these little conversations. They're just small pieces that just humanize the situation and the teacher. And when you read it, you see like, oh, this is doable. This is just something I could prepare myself for this. I mean, the one teacher who came in and had like the kids crying about the Trump election and then the other kids wearing their MAGA hats and celebrating. And here you go. What are you going to do about it? I mean, we've all been in those situations where the kids are all wound up about something. I think it's it's there whether we want to take it on or not, I guess, is my point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so it brings me to, oh, go well, ahead. I'm sorry. Say, since I'm just so practically quoted your whole book back to you. Since <laughs> we're winding down, I felt like a good way to end it was the- Well, I don't want to end yet though. I have another question. Oh, I was afraid that's where you were going as you were ending. No, no. <laughs> we have to have hand signals, like ending, like we have to have like, you know, this means ending and I'm this means, you know, like in your classroom, this means I have to go to the bathroom and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need signs. <laughs> no, I had I had another question, and we can we can cut all this out. So that's cool. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for anything. And and Bill and Bill's sitting here going, oh, really? <laughs> like, 
okay. well until right now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that, okay. So here we go. So that brings me to a question of after reading this book or, you know, if a teacher or a couple of teachers read this and they want to bring this to their um, district or to their colleagues, do you have any suggestions as to how they could do that? Because I know in the district I taught in, like some people would be very open to this and some absolutely would not be both faculty and admin. So how would you suggest teachers go about sort of collab, you know, making this collaborative? Mm -hmm. Another good question. Um, (laughs) I, and I, I do think that it depends on, um, in the individual context that someone is working in, right? Like you said earlier, like if, if a district is unionized and if things could come through, you know, the either the union at the local level or whoever the school site coordinator is. But I would also say that there's so many schools now that are that require teachers to participate in professional learning communities, right? Or book studies or other kinds of professional development. Um, this is in many ways like responsive to the professional development that teachers always say they want, but never get, right? So we've all sat through professional development that's like the one and done thing, and then it never goes anywhere, right? This is the kind of thing that if teachers commit collectively to doing it, we know that it will keep happening, right? We don't know what day will happen next. We don't know what event will happen, but this is something that will always need to be attended to in schools. And so when I've talked with particular administrators in districts around Michigan and elsewhere who thought that they wanted to engage me for professional development and then changed their mind, (laughs) the, the reason that they changed their mind was because they realized that it wasn't a one and done. And they wanted something that would tick off the justice and equity box and say, we did this, right? But what I think the, the power of days after pedagogy is that it's something that can and should keep happening. And, and so if there are groups of teachers that already exist, you could kind of bring this into the structure that, that is currently in place or start some kind of new group or collective, even if it's not in your school, you know, there's such support in online professional communities and ITAGs, inquiry to action groups now that are doing justice oriented work that I don't think that teachers ever have to feel alone in their schools. Right. So you say that, you know, no teacher should have to feel alone. And and ideally every teacher is engaging in this work. Mm -hmm. What if there is a teacher that feels alone? Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, I know we have the online community, Mm -hmm. but where can we find you um, on socials? Where can we find your, you know, your upcoming work, your, your current work, Where can those teachers that do feel alone get support? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the group um, that we mentioned earlier, it is a Facebook group, which I know is contentious in this moment, as it should be. Um, But um, when I when I worked with the original 30 participants in the research, the um, the site that they thought would be most that most of them thought would be most useful for sharing in-depth resources was Facebook. So as you mentioned, yeah, it started out for these 30 people, right? And then it grew to about 2000 um, in the summer of 2020. And then someone shared it on Twitter on January 6th, 2021, just an hour after the Capitol attack. (laughs) And then it grew to 16,000 teachers. 
around the world, which is really absurd because I'm just like, I don't want to run a Facebook group. (laughs) Like I'm just a professor (laughs) and a mom, but I do now apparently. Um, And now it's up to 19,000 people. Wow. All this to say that there is there is a large and robust Facebook group called Teaching on Days After. (laughs) And there are also lots of other wonderful um, justice oriented Facebook groups. Um, And there's two organizations that I would love to shout out, both of which are receiving the proceeds from the book. So the first one is the Abolitionist Teaching Network, which is founded by Dr. Bettina Love, and they provide webinars and resources and grants for community organizers and just wonderful kind of ritual justice focused pedagogical supports and community level supports. And then the other is called Woke Kindergarten. And Woke Kindergarten is designed to be responsive on days after for our youngest learners. So in particular, one of the concerns that I know that many teachers have is like, well, how do you do days after with really young children? And there are examples in the book from kindergarten teachers and first grade teachers who are doing this. And I I would argue doing it really well. And woke kindergarten is a way to do it. So Kai is the creator and they design 60 second texts, you know, really kind of quick things that you can do with your class with even with your own kids to just kind of introduce them to whatever these ideas are. Both ATN and Woke Kindergarten have presence on all of the, you know, different types of social media apps. So you can find them anywhere there. And I think they are just great organizations to find like-minded educators. Okay, thank you. I will be including these in the episode notes. To, so our listeners, if you are, you know, what, what did she say? It's going to be right there for you. All right, Ms. Fee, do you want to wrap it up for us? I would love to. <laughs> okay. I saved my favorite quote for the end because I just thought it was like such a nice note to end on, which is, if we care about children, we care about what is happening in their lives and in the world around them. If we care about children, we can put aside our planned lessons for a day or more to address the most critical issues of our time. I thought that was like, perfect. That was it. There's your thesis statement. <laughs> right it's there. so, it's so um, weird and humbling to have someone quote me to me. I don't, <laughs> none of the listeners can see my face, but whatever, it's not. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> well, originally I started collecting quotes because we weren't sure that everyone was going to get books in time. And so I thought this would be a great way to give the other two, like some of these snippets, but then they got their books and then I was just obsessively collecting quotes and quoting them back. I mean, an English like teacher, you know. Youth. Yes, <laughs> English teacher until I die. <laughs> They're also all cited correctly on my Google Docs in case you were worried. <laughs> yes, I, I attest to that. I was like, wow, go you. <laughs> Okay, well, otherwise I'll go, where did I find that if I ever want to go back? So really, that's why I don't. <laughs> Okay, well, Alyssa, thank you so much again for our listeners. The name of the book is Teaching on Days After, Educating for Equity in the Wake of Injustice. And our guest, in case you want her full name for checking by author, Alyssa Hadley Dunn. So thank you, Alyssa. But we are not done with you. So (laughs) we are going to um, move on to Pop Quiz, which is our segment where we ask you some sort of ridiculous question and you respond, we respond and 
you know, find out what color socks you're wearing or whatever it is. So um, let's do it. Okay. You ready? Okay. (laughs) Hey, teach, would you like to go first? Sure. Okay. So your book is about teaching on the days after racial injustice and, and any kind of injustice, but I think teaching on the days after really good things can be important a really uh, important aspect as well. So what's something that was really awesome that happened and you had to teach the next day instead of celebrating like a maniac? (laughs) (laughs) And do I answer first? Yes. I got to teach the day after Obama was elected for the first time. That's so fun. (laughs) And I was teaching predominantly students of color, some of whom had grandparents who got to vote for Obama um, and talked with them about what it was like to vote for a Black man as as president when they were were Black themselves. And it was a beautiful day. I might like get teary-eyed talking about it. It was a beautiful, really, really special day. That's awesome. I've got goosebumps. I'm actually going to go along with that, not on the day after he was elected, but I remember showing the inauguration in my classroom, which was the only time I did that throughout my teaching career. I mean, no, the Trump inauguration was not shown in my classroom, but yes, showing the uh, inauguration. And I kept saying, this is history. This is history. (laughs) The kids were all looking at me like I was nuts, but hopefully now that they're adults, they understand why I did that. So I can't think of anything, but to piggyback off the Obama theme here, I sort of did the opposite because I worked in a district that was probably not going to understand the historical significance of it. So on a total whim, I got out of work and my husband and I drove to Chicago. So we were in Chicago that night when they announced and then he spoke after he won. And that was amazing because as I mentioned, I teach in a taught in a conservative, predominantly white district. And it was just amazing to stand in one of those parks in Chicago. I don't know anything about Chicago. And it was just full of people from all different walks of life and just like celebrating and crying. And then I didn't have to go to work the next day. I called in sick. (laughs) So I didn't have to hear any kids say any jerky things to to ruin my vibe. So that was a real selfish answer, but that's what I got for you. <laughs> that, that is a good day after to that not is, have to go to work. There you yeah. go. <laughs> hey, Teach, do you have one? Uh, yeah. So actually, um, Amanda Gorman sharing her poetry at Biden's inauguration. That was really big because this that that very month, actually, about a week and a half before the inauguration, our school had unveiled a new club, a new after-school club doing a literary magazine, and mm. I had just recommended some students for it. So a little bit smaller scale, I guess, but super cool to have a, a woman, a girl who looked like them, who was reading poetry and was sort of close to their age. Like, that was really cool for us. Awesome. Okay, well, I'm going to ask something completely not related to education or anything at all important. I'm going to ask, what is your favorite breakfast cereal? <laughs> oh, I uh, a rough question, one. right? I have to pick just one. Okay. You don't have to pick just one. If you have two or three, that's okay. <laughs> there are no rules. <laughs> no, the breakfast cereal police aren't going to come in and do anything. It's fine. I mean, you don't know that, but... <laughs> That's okay. I'm I'm a risk taker. <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> um, life cereal. 
okay. and Cocoa Puffs, mm-hmm. not Co- together. Cinnamon Life, only Cinnamon Life. Just okay. Okay. All right. Miss V, thoughts? Oh my gosh. I think I like old people cereal and I have since I was little, I love like granola or anything with granola, honey, bunches of oats. Cause I'm there for the bunches of oats. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's good to granola. <laughs> okay. All right. Hey teach. How about you? I'm even more boring. I'm a big fan of bran flakes and Cheerios. <laughs> oh my gosh. You guys should all come over and have breakfast with your mister. I didn't bran flakes easy. by choice. I thought that was only yeah. a prescription that a doctor gave you. <laughs> yeah, no. We, there's like raisin bran in our in our house. And I just look at it and go like, you know, shredded wheat. And I just go, oh, really? Yeah, okay, but, well, I'm going to. But, but you, you, you overlook the um, Fruit Loops and the Captain Crunch, so. Well, yes, no, I never overlook <laughs> Fruit Loops or Captain Crunch. I was going to say my favorite, my favorite cereals would be Captain Crunch or Frosted Flakes. Uh, not that I eat breakfast cereal all, all the time, but I actually eat it more as like a, a snack. Like instead of ice cream, I'll have like Frosted Flakes because it's the same thing. It's sugar. But I just discovered this really great cereal at Trader Joe's. It's called it's called Puffins and they have peanut butter puffins. And this shit is it's dope. really good. It is so good. It's it is so good. And I went back to get more last week and they were out of it. And I just stared at the shelf for like a good five <laughs> minutes waiting for it to appear. So that's my my cereal recommendation. It's good. There's and it's a vanilla not, puff. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say it's not quite as like bad for you as frosted flakes probably there's a vanilla puffins that's also good uh can we ask scotty's input on this one yeah go ahead scotty what is what is your favorite cereal go ahead my favorite cereal is is uh raisin bran honestly um let's get stuff <laughs> hey, everybody you, else has did you two, like, plan this before we came on no <laughs> no no brand lab that's over true there. um but uh i do like captain crunch and um other sweet stuff too yeah we're gonna end up in marriage counseling after this what raisin <laughs> brand what do you mean captain crunch i didn't know that uh, this will be one that we need to teach on the days after <laughs> yes. yes okay all right see you survived pop quiz it wasn't that bad oh it was it was lovely and now i'm i'm hungry for some <laughs> Good. i can't believe i forgot okay all right well uh, again Alyssa, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We'd love to have you back at some point. So you are now officially part of our family. So you're stuck with us. Okay. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. Okay. Thanks to Max Siskind of Max and Max in the Morning for our intro. And thanks to Elaine Eckert for our artwork. Thank you as always to Scotty for making us sound fabulous and competent. And thanks to all of you for listening. And if you like what we're doing here on the show or just don't hate it all that much, here are some ways you can help. First, spread the word. Tell your friends, your enemies, your frenemies, even that guy on the street. And share us on social media with your teacher and non-teacher friends alike. And secondly, if you can leave us a review and a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. You can find us all over social media. Our contact information is in the episode notes. And thank you again for listening. And remember to submit your attendance. Don't forget to practice self-care. 
and make sure you wear the right color for Spirit Day. See ya!